When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea your host for today's interview with Elena Kotos, who is director of the Center for Communication Excellence at the Graduate School, Iowa State University, and associate professor in the English department, Iowa State University. A professor of psychology puts down her mug of coffee and rereads the opening paragraphs of a student's first manuscript for publication. The professor sees there nothing wrong with the subject matter, Much to the contrary, she sees that the student's work deserves recognition. This is publishable material. However, the professor knows that the manuscript will not get published, and sipping again at her coffee, she tries to figure out why. It's no easy thing for a disciplinary expert like this imaginary professor to make explicit the sorts of things the expert, so to speak, just knows. The two most important things that experts just know are, of course, the subject matter knowledge, and much less so, of course, their knowledge of how to communicate that subject matter knowledge. It's this second form of expert knowledge, which often goes unnoticed and untaught during a person's studies, and it is this knowledge of knowledge communication which has our example professor drinking too much coffee because she can't seem to pinpoint where her graduate student has communicated the findings so that other psychologists simply will not see the value of her research. Psychology is not simply psychology. No academic discipline just is itself. But, uh, to stay with our psychology example, but it must be communicated as psychology gets communicated so that readers not only understand, say, the assessment criteria of the experiments, but also so that readers recognize the significance of the psychology getting communicated. It turns out no research is value-free, at least not in the sense where value-free means that expert readers will pay attention or show interest or ultimately grasp the research, unless that research is making some recognizable contribution to the field. 
Research communities don't discover knowledge so much as they agree on knowledge. And that is why communication is so central to the academic enterprise. The value of research is communicated in writing. It's rhetoric, or in the terminology of present-day applied linguistics, the value of research is in the genre of that research. A research article, an encyclopedic entry, a grant proposal, a literature review, a book chapter, a whole book, the list goes on and ends really nowhere because genres, a bit like the words in a language, come and go. And the genres which are here now are constantly in flux. Still, it's in the nature of a genre to be analyzable, and it takes only a computing, calculating sort of mind to label in order to utilize all the moving parts of a genre. But as we've seen, precisely this task had our caffeinated professor of psychology rather stumped. The task stumps many a disciplinary expert and many a great writer. Again, just because we know how to do something ourselves does not automatically mean we know how to show others how to do it. How nice, then, if academics could run software on written assignments, on theses and dissertations, on manuscripts for publication, perhaps even their own, so that the hidden rhetoric of the document floated to the surface. And how much better if the software could then compare and contrast the rhetoric thus revealed with the rhetoric of published and cited texts? Actually, the hypothetical how nice if becomes the exclamative how nice that because the Center for Communication Excellence, there, this software, exists, and it's called the Research Writing Tutor. This is the only tool of its kind, really, software that articulates specific rhetorical strategies, explains what the strategies are, and provides a lot of examples. The Research Writing Tutor provides every writer with the data he or she needs in order to translate their research into the communication of their research. The research writing tutor is a missing link between university-level studies and career-level research. And this is just one of the many tools, aids, and activities on offer at the Center for Communication Excellence at Iowa State University under the directorship of Elena Kotos, today's guest. So let's begin today's episode, Elena Kotos and the Center for Communication Excellence. Elena, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you. I'm happy to like be to... here. <laughs> great, great. I'd like to start off with a question that sort of throws us right into the thick of today's topics, questions about writing centers, professional communication, linguistics, and all that. Uh, but the question is meant to sort of throw us in there from afar, through your career, let's say. And, and the question is this, what is it about scholarly communication in general and academic writing in particular that's led you into your career? Thank you for this very interesting first question. Um, to be honest, I never thought that my career would be focused on academic writing, scientific writing in particular, and technology related to it. Um, when I started my doctoral program, I thought that I would be working with speaking, um, speaking for English as a second language context, pedagogical context. But hey, um, I was in a doctoral program, and I found myself in a new culture. I come from Eastern Europe, uh, Moldova, and our writing style is completely different. So um, I realized that I cannot really write academically in English. And so as I was learning how to write uh, or attempting 
to learn how to write academically, especially when it came to my um, research, um, I did not really find any support or instructional materials or courses or any other opportunities, at least here on campus when I was a doctoral student. So as an applied linguist, at the same time, um, I was interested in discourse analysis and language learning and technologies. And then I gradually began to connect these domains in a research agenda that became both descriptive and applied in nature. And so my discourse analysis work began to center on investigating corpora, which we linguists call large principled collections of texts. And I was interested in describing how language functions to convey various meanings and create effective discourse in specific contexts. So that was very relevant to my challenge of producing research discourse. Um, and then from a technology standpoint, I was interested in applying what I find about discourse, applying those corpus-based descriptions to address the challenges in language learning and teaching and writing in particular. Um, and again, thinking about my own challenges as an academic writer. So um, as I was doing research, investigating the uh, conventions of scientific discourse, um, I have been, of course, in contact with many colleagues, peers of mine, graduate students, and, and became more and more clear to me that the skills they needed to fully participate in the discursive practices of their resp uh, respective disciplines were lacking. It, it may sound harsh, but um, they were very blunt about it. And that's how I felt too. So um, I knew then that what I wanted to do is to devise discourse-focused and technology-enhanced pedagogies that would be responsive to advanced level and field-specific needs. And so, again, with time, my focus was on examining corpora, starting with writing. Now I also do oral academic genres. And my goals were, number one, to describe how language, as a linguist, obviously, I was interested in language use, um, how it is used for specific purposes in academic contexts and disciplines, how to apply those descriptions to the design of technology that could help um, develop target skills. Let's talk about writing skills today mostly. Um, and then, of course, as a researcher who is also a developer, I um, was interested in empirically evaluating the technology in ways that have direct implications for, of course, pedagogy in further inquiry. So by saying that, <laughs> I would like to sort of highlight that uh, my scholarship builds on a research practice synergy that goes back to me trying to become or learn to be an academic writer. And um, you mentioned that I am both uh, the director of the Center for Communication Excellence, which we call the CCE for short, and faculty in the Applied Linguistics program. And because I had this dual appointment, I was able to lead a scholarly informed development of instructional programs and curricula and materials and assessments that serve the academic English needs of graduate students and postdoctoral scholars in various disciplines. Um, and 
Well, I may also say that because the analysis of um, field-specific discourse requires expert judgments, like the psychologist you mentioned in your introduction, um, and because technologies require computer programming expertise and such, I've also engaged in many intradisciplinary and interdisciplinary collaborations that helped me develop the tool that you also mentioned, the research writing tutor that um, is built based on the results of extensive research um, investigating the conventions, the writing conventions, the writing goals, the writing strategies of uh, research articles in 30 disciplines. We actually expanded now, we have 32 disciplines, so. So time for a little celebration, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I do want to hear definitely more about the program, but to, to stay with your own um, sort of career path and your decision to get into this uh, fantastic work that you're doing on the level of research and also pedagogy, I find it really fascinating that it all began essentially with you initially wanting to learn how to write academically and having also the expertise to sort of analyze your own problem and see that Clearly, this wasn't just your own problem. <laughs> this is a problem, and I mean, it's well known, and many of my listeners will, will will be in this area of work, so they'll be facing it every day, that entering into academic English from any discipline is not just a given, right? You can't just assume that someone will make that step, even if they do understand their discipline quite well. But um, you, you were talking about rock, writing academically in English. And I wonder if we could just sort of tease these two apart briefly. How much of this is about English and how much of this is about academic genres? Is there any sort of useful separations that could be made there or a statement that applies more to the one area than to the other? Um, I, initially, I did think that it's my English that was to blame, but then I discovered that I, I just didn't know the genre. I was not, um, I didn't know the, well, when I started, uh, I wasn't really thinking of a genre having certain conventions that um, are sort of accepted by the disciplinary community um, and, and expected by the readership in your field, but not only in your field, that conventions are cross-disciplinary. And so I discovered that through my research um, when looking at multiple disciplines and, and, and seeing that really they do share communicative goals and they do use a very similar set of rhetorical strategies um, when they build their scientific arguments. So um, while I was sort of a little bit mistaken thinking that it was my English, it's really more about the genre knowledge um, than than English language proficiency. And that, that brings me also to the goals that you mentioned. The first being how language is used for specific purposes. And, and that's an interesting way of putting it because even there you didn't quite say English. So, I mean, this is really an issue of how do purposes get communicated to other people who would probably in that case share those purposes. I mean, when we're talking in the area of academic research, we're talking about research communities. So, a, a group of biologists who happen to be specialized in one particular branch of the research. I mean, those are initially the audience of interest. So, I mean, the language is being straightjacketed into a very specific sort of uh, 
sets of aims that that only in a way these these biologists in that particular area can even achieve right because they know what they are saying and they know also what they want to do exactly and um i'm glad you're mentioning language so much as a linguist of course that appeals to me a lot when when we talk about genre let's say with um students in various disciplines who don't know what they are the simple the simplest way um to explain the, the, the basics of genre to them is that, hey, um, texts have parts, right? If you think of the research article, it has parts. It has an introduction, methods, results, discussion, conclusion section. This is conventionalized, right? This is a very, very likely and expected structure. And then these parts are expected to accomplish certain communicative goals, like the introduction is supposed to really highlight a gap in the research territory, which is one of the goals, right? And then how do you accomplish those goals? Well, you use a set of rhetorical strategies. Um, And then, well, how do you know that your rhetorical strategy is effective? Well, that's because you made the appropriate language choices, right? So language, although it we don't start with explaining the importance of language. Um, we get there, and it's what we call the functional language <clears throat> that helps um, make these rhetorical strategies effective and make the ideas explicit, which is one of the biggest problems that we kept hearing from faculty that I was working with um, when I was doing this huge discourse analysis project. We had faculty consultants in all 30 disciplines. And and they were saying exactly what you were saying at the beginning about the psychology professor. Well, I know there's something wrong there, but I just don't know how to express that. And if you give me language to to define certain things, that would be very helpful. So so that's how we, you know, in in John Swale's tradition of move analysis, we developed a framework um, of moves, which are communicative goals and, and steps that are rhetorical strategies. This is a very, very um, strong and prolific um, research um, area in applied linguistics. So we, we developed these cross-disciplinary moves and steps and, and gave them to our faculty consultants. And they said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to, to say. Now I know how to communicate this to my students. And it also helps students when we work with them. They know exactly that they, and they understand that they need to be doing something in their discourse. And to be able to do what they want to do, they need to be choosing the right language, make the right language choices um, and that, that would function the way they want. They want sorry. Yeah, and I, th- there's there's two wonderful things there that I'd love to follow up. I, I suppose I'll start with the functional language, which is a fantastic way I find of putting it. And and the second thing that I, I want to get to, perhaps, and after that is what you say about faculty recognizing a problem, much along the way that I described our fictional uh, <laughs> psychology professor there, but not having like a handle. To grasp it with, just saying sort of, and that's and that's when graduate students or any other student gets sort of the basic feedback. Mm, you need to work on your structure or something, right? Make it clearer. And these obviously are not things that help the students so much either, right? Despite the good intentions of uh, the faculty member, I mean that's clearly an argument for 
uh, re, uh, you know, researchers in applied linguistics or uh, researchers from writing centers getting closer to faculties, you know, to give them that language. But I'm actually trying to put that back a little bit. So I'll stop talking there. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the point that I'm, I'm making about the functional language, in, in my experience, what I've noticed is that a writer um, at many levels, but let's say either graduate or early career, is focusing very much clearly on the subject matter. So let's go back to our biologist example, right? Very mm-hmm. clearly focused on this piece of research that they're trying to explain and make clear. And then they notice, of course, the language because they've got to go and write it. But they're not looking at the language as you've just put it from the functional perspective. They're looking at it from, let me just call it sort of generally the stylistic perspective. They're thinking, you know, certain things need to sound good. I've got to imitate the sorts of expressions that I've seen and so on. But they don't see the purpose behind that language, which is exactly what brings in the function that you're talking about. Exactly. Um, And I would just say that when they think of, you know, putting words on paper, they don't think about making an argument. They think about putting on paper the content. So they're very much focused on the content. Um, you know, if it's an experiment description, they they will describe the experiment. Um, they will tell you what they did, but then they wouldn't necessarily think about rationalizing or justifying certain methodological choices, for instance, right? Um, so, so they will have this descriptive language a lot in their, let's say, first drafts. Um, and then when you start talking to them about, about these rhetorical strategies and the functions that the language should um, perform, then they start thinking about, oh, that's right. So I see now what my, why my professor said that I should be doing this. I just don't understand. I didn't understand at the time what the professor meant. Right? So we're getting back to your idea of how explicit Um, The feedback may or may not be, and usually it is not, but how um, getting a, having a grasp or having a tool like a framework of goals and strategies to lean on brings much more clarity on both ends, the student and the faculty. Um, I wonder if you could maybe just illustrate that for listeners. So we've used a number of sort of abstract terms, functional uh, language, and also a rhetorical strategy. Is there something that sort of typically comes up where a student gets a a bit of an aha moment? Ah, that's what the professor meant. Or, ah, I see now that's why all of those articles do that kind of a thing. Now I get the purpose. Is is there any way you could maybe just give a a real quick sort of illustration? Sure. So, um, Maybe we can uh, give an example from an introduction. Um, So a professor may give feedback saying, well, yeah, um, it's, it's, you're giving me background information and you're talking about the topic and, and you're bringing in, bringing in some, some research um, and you cite some important studies there and that's relevant, but I'm not convinced that that topic is really worth investigating. So why? What's the problem? Um, And and the students may go back to think, well, but I said that the problem is this thing is not working. Let's say if we're talking about some engineering program problem or something, Uh, is that enough? 
it is not enough, right? So when you start building your argument from the introduction, then some strategies to highlight the importance of the topic is to explicitly claim the centrality of the topic, to say something that would tell the readers that it's really important in the field, or maybe it has recently gained a lot of interest, or maybe it's been a central, an important topic for many, many, many years. So in this case, we would say you need to use the strategy or step that's called claiming centrality. And we would give examples of what what the language, the functional language of claiming centrality would be. And it may be as simple as in the past few years to show recency, right? Um, has been a significant point of interest. You have that functional language, a significant point of interest, right? And you tell, you begin to tell the readers that there is importance there that's recognized not just by you, but by others in the field. And then you get into the literature and then you start looking at what's going on in the research territory and you begin using other strategies like highlighting a gap or a problem or raising general questions or providing a justification and need for research to sort of segue um, into your um, study. So hopefully that example works. Very good. Yeah, no, that, that I think that makes it uh, crystal clear. And it also uh, brings to my mind the the importance of understanding the rhetoric behind it uh, or, or the genre thinking behind it, as you might say, this idea that you've, you, you're following a purpose. I mean, when you say in recent years, you're establishing the importance of the research through a particular method. And what you very often notice students doing more inexperienced writers doing is imitating some of these phrases without understanding why they might need them. And that's when I think very many people who deal with student writing feel that, you know, they often see them saying, themselves saying in the margins, cut, superfluous, um, not necessary here, and so on. It's almost as if the students are just sort of, you know, picking up on signals, but not understanding what's being sent out with those signals. And that may happen, especially when uh, faculty uh, advisors or professors say, well, why don't you choose a paper from this journal? And because it's very similar to what you're doing and maybe use that as a model. And it's good to use things as a model. Uh, we, we really, that's, we have a lot of text models in the research writing tutor. But like you said, you really need to understand the purpose before you can apply a model. Let me come over to the faculty now who seem to be dancing around in the background of our discussion. We'll bring them right up front now. Um, you, you, you made a great point there of you know, the need that is in the faculties for them to really understand what it is that they've already mastered on some sort of subconscious level. Some people know also how to talk about it, but I would say clearly they're in the minority and don't know, though, how to pass it on. And, and I'm interested now very much in getting into some of the details of the, um, the CCE, the Center for Communication Excellence, what it is that the work that, that you do there and so on. Uh, perhaps the best place to start is to deal with that challenge. How do you get over into the faculties and get them, let's say, to admit that something's not right? And then how do you administratively and structurally go about forming a center 
along the size of yours. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think faculty are really, really important. Um, unfortunately, we don't really uh, have a way of um, educating the faculty. We do reach out to them um, through uh, their administration, through the directors of graduate studies when we um, advertise opportunities and events for the graduate students. Um, maybe from here, I can um, tell you a little bit about the center so that you see um, and, and the audience understands what the focus of the center is and who our population primary populations are um, and why faculty are not really within our reach, not that we don't want to serve them or educate them, uh, but we are still a very young center and uh, accomplishing multiple things at a time. So um, just to give you a little bit background, I said the center is relatively new, recent, uh, because it was established in 2015. Um, I am proud that I had been, I had uh, a big role in establishing it, and certainly that wasn't easy. Um, it all started about 10 years ago uh, when Iowa State University's Writing and Media Help Center changed its mission and stopped serving graduate students. Um, I must say that things have changed now. But back then, this drastic change sparked a strong wave of concern regarding the need for graduate writing support, not only among students, but also faculty. And we had some graduate programs, some faculty in the communication fields and the library. Um, they were providing some instructional opportunities, but the offerings were very uncoordinated, irregular, and um, most importantly, they generally failed to give the high engagement, the one-on-one -on -one support ne necessary for actual skill development. And it was certainly not an easy thing, easy initiative, when there was already a writing center on campus. There were arguments, well, we already have a center, let's just add more funding there, because funding was a big cause for, for the change in mission of the existing Writing and Media Help Center. So let's add more funding there for graduate students and let's, let's do that. So um, back to my role, at that time I was working for the Graduate College and I had just created a program um, focused on research writing um, called the Academic Communication Program. And uh, it was grounded in a university-wide needs analysis study that I had conducted involving graduate students, postdoctoral associates, and faculty. And the results clearly showed that learning about and producing research-related writing genres was the number one need and priority for graduate students. And that, I will remind that was um, derived from the responses of faculty as well. Um, however, this was the area for, for which students had the least support. Um, and then in 2012, the Associate Provost for Academic Programs and the Dean of the Graduate College appointed me as the head of the Graduate Writing Support Task Force. So they created a task force. It was convened by the Provost Office and it was charged with proposing a solution for a problem. And the problem was graduate writing support. Um, and long story short, as part of this task force, we really had to fight 
um, the idea of not creating something new, but just opening back the doors and leaving things as they were. Um, still, the task force developed a proposal to institute a center that would cater to the more specific and more advanced needs of graduate students and postdocs. I must say that the Writing and Media Center at the time um, had mostly undergraduate student tutors um, who were not receiving much train in consulting. Um, I remember that they, I think they had about two weeks of training or so, um, and they were not really versed in the more advanced genres, especially, you know, journal manuscripts and theses and dissertations. So uh, we proposed three service models um, with respective scopes, clientele, staffing, and budgets, because there were so many different uh, views on whether or not this is needed and money's obviously <laughs> always a big issue. Um, and of those options, actually, the model of a communication skill development and research center with a broad scope and a faculty director appealed to the university leadership the most. And um, I think the time was also right because um, there were new significant initiatives on campus that had begun to promote a broader vision of the roles that scholars, both established and aspiring, um, should be capable of playing in this 21st century that we live in. So the vision and the mission of our task force was to propose for the new center um, goals that aligned well with the university's other strategic initiatives. So that was sort of a strategic move and a good timing for us. So that problem was actually uh, seen as an opportunity to uh, make uh, or create something that would make ISU recognized as a national leader in promoting comprehensive and well-rounded and research-based development for young scholars and, and professionals. So fortunately in 2014, um, I received special project funding to develop and implement the pilot. And the purpose was to test basically the viability of a key component of the center's model. The, um, what we now call the peer mentor program. And through this program, we provided consulting on discipline-specific writing. We, we got buy-in from specific departments who would pay for um, these teaching assistantships. That's how we had set up the consultation services. And so we trained, um, say, students in mechanical engineering to consult on genre writing um, with students in their own discipline. So trying to merge the best of both worlds, the disciplinary knowledge and also the knowledge of genre conventions. Um, so the pilot was very, very successful. And a year later, the CCE was officially instituted. Um, it is now housed in the Graduate College. It has its own budget coming from central funding. And um, I, as the director, report to the Dean of the Graduate College and appreciate much of the latitude that he gives me for developing new programs. As you said, we um, have a lot of writing support programs, but we've also moved into the academic oral communication area as well. Both of which areas are entirely necessary. And um, thank you very much for the, for the overview. I think that gives a real perspective 
for very many people how something like this can come about and also why it needs to come about. I mean, I think you covered certainly both of those areas. I was very interested in the point of timing, how it how it aligned with larger um, university aims. Um, because I can say from a European perspective, and I think there's plenty of writing centers out there in the States who would also sort of understand this scenario, um, the scenario that we were talking about before the center. So the uncoordinated, the irregular, the sort of effective patchwork system of trying to get study skills across to people, as opposed to the sort of high engagement that's, that's done at a CCE so that people actually really are ready for their graduate studies or their professional careers. Um, let's say without the timing, if you're maybe lacking a broader vision across the university, what would be decisive factors you think that could help people realize we've, we need to coordinate this, we need to get this into a research-based sort of program. We need to give the writing over to, and the speaking over to the professionals. Oh, multiple conversations with high stakes of uh, decision makers, um, stakeholders. Um, definitely, unfortunately, student voices um, are not, I mean, they're heard, but often may not have much power in, in decision-making. So through my experience, I found that um, communicating with, like I said, high-level decision-makers, deans, um, the provost office, uh, certain committees, making presentations. I actually had to make a lot of presentations to demonstrate how our center would be different from the services of the current writing center or writing center at the time. Um, so until you actually demonstrate and then um, propose something that is not um, pitched as the solution, you know, this is we're going to save the world with this solution, but as a potential possible um, option leading to a solution and proposing a pilot and then getting the proof of concept evidence, people believe in evidence, right? So getting the evidence that this works um, is the way to go. At least it was the way to go for me. Well, it sounds very convincing. And, and that brings us also to the pilot, which is um, still a central part of what the CCE does, the Graduate Peer Mentor Program. And you've given us a brief look into how that works. Fantastic idea, clearly. Take the people who are already becoming experts in their field and help make them communicative experts and then turn them around and send them into, you know, the rest of uh, the department so that they can help other writers there. Um, fantastic, right? <laughs> that worked for us. <laughs> and it's it, still working. It's still working very well for us. And we are now um, training not only disciplinary consultants, but also interdisciplinary consultants. Research um, has informed us quite a bit. And, and practice has also given us... Um, enough evidence that this model works. So we have um, consultants, let's say from, I don't know, agronomy um, and who work with students in agronomy or agricultural biosystems engineering who work with students in agricultural biosystem engineering. And we have consultants from mechanical engineering who work with students across the board, no matter what discipline they come from. 
That's one of those interesting points uh, that I noticed in, in the program online is that you will do inside of a discipline, but you'll also have somebody coming from outside of a discipline. Is there any way you could broadly sketch which advantages the two approaches bring um, or maybe even what sort of a project or what sort of a writer might profit better from the one or the other? Um, this is more a matter of providing multiple options and also um, sustaining uh, a, a model <laughs> that um, maybe I should say sustaining a model from a financial point of view. With, like I mentioned, with the disciplinary writing consultations, those consultants come from a particular department, work with students in that particular department, and the department pays for their service. Okay, so we um, we train them, we mentor them, we work with them throughout their time with us, um, but we don't pay for, for their work. We also have um, interdisciplinary writing consultations, and in this case, the consultants are paid from the budget of the center. Um, we have a lot of programs and departments that are smaller on campus and cannot afford to um, sustain a writing consultant position. Um, and that means we need to take charge of this um, and we can't leave out any students. So we have the interdisciplinary writing consultations. We have the English writing consultations as well, for especially for international graduate students. And we also have more specialized consultations in thesis dissertation writing and nationally competitive awards writing. Um, so it's not like students are limited to one or another. It depends on what their needs are. Um, a student who, who can work with a disciplinary writing consultant may not get on the agenda of that disciplinary writing consultant speaking in practic practical terms. They get booked very quickly, but they still need help and they work with an interdisciplinary writing consultant. So um, it's they won't be getting that necessarily that background um, understanding or knowledge of the subject matter, but they will still receive support along the lines of writing quality, genre appropriateness, and things that we train them in. Two things that I'd like to sort of comment on, and and, and please uh, say what you think about them with this graduate peer mentor program, is what would be, let's say, sort of on a kind of general level or even specific, if you, if you can, sort of the role of the subject expert when it comes to writing in a genre. I suppose what I mean is that as linguists, we can sort of look upon these texts and really like almost like a roadmap, understand what's going on without necessarily being well-versed in the topic matter, right? So biology or whatever, that might not be your cup of tea, but you can look at a research article and you get what they're doing and where, and you could probably also help somebody who's doing it. And I wonder, uh, so for the, for the peer mentors, right? So the graduate students who then take part in your program, um, how let's say, vital is it that they're also from the same background? What sort of a, you know, in, in what sort of a benefit comes with that? Um, well, in these kinds of scenarios, they, they still talk quite a bit about the expectations of the disciplinary community, uh, but also about the clarity of content. 
Um, one thing that students often don't realize when they, let's say, write for publication is that they also need to educate somewhat the audience um, and not write to themselves. And so they stick to very descriptive jargon type um, writing, um, assuming that the readers know what they're talking about. And if you don't understand the subject matter, it may seem that it's it's fine, you know, uh, but if you have a disciplinary background knowledge, then then you can comment or our consultants tend to comment on um, how explicit, necessary, redundant some of the content may be or some maybe not explicit. Um, and also if, um, you know, if there if there's an element of logical content flow. We, you know, if, if, if we as linguists look at functional language and see the argument, you, we sort of see the skeleton of the argument, um, the disciplinary consultants see the logic of that argument and how it's, it's um, what its content realizations are and, and how well that content fits within the, the, the bones of the argument, if yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. No, very much so. And the other thing I wanted to comment about the peer mentors was it's, I would imagine very many listeners are thinking, wow, what a great service to their peers. You know, how, how, how wonderful that these, you know, other writers who are perhaps not as good as they, they are, are actually benefiting from them. I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from the peers themselves, the peer mentors themselves saying how much they learned and how much better their writing has become and what they've gained through the experience. Yes, we do. And we're very happy to hear that. And the word goes out and we have uh, more and more applications to become graduate peer mentors from students on campus. Um, and we, you know, the, the fact that they are disciplinary writing consultants um, and the experience they gain from there uh, motivates them to expand their practices and try their hand at being an interdisciplinary writing consultant or a thesis dissertation writing consultant or leading a peer review group. Um, we have continuous uh, professional development opportunities for our consultants. And if they're willing to get additional certification in addition to the one that they already have, we're more than happy to do that. Uh, maybe this will be a little bit off topic, but we have very specific training programs, and um, they used to be in the form of a full-fledged um, semester-long credit-bearing course that they would get certified through. Um, well, it wasn't certification per se because they were getting credits for that, but then we developed um, self-paced online training programs um, at the end of which they get certified, they, they get assessed and certified, and so they're their CV becomes richer with these um, unique professional development opportunities. Um, so for somebody in mechanical engineering to have a certificate in disciplinary writing consultant or um, nationally competitive awards writing consultant, this is really makes this candidate or the students stand apart um, when being evaluated against other peers. Yeah, I, God, that's so obvious. I mean, clearly, I mean, if you've if you've got a great degree to show, you've done fantastic in your discipline, you've got that experience mentoring, and you've got the additional certifications. 
yeah, <laughs> it's a win-win situation, right? Isn't it? It is. And this fall, we are piloting a um, model for being a mentor consultant. So we have our senior consultants. Um, well, we don't have too many senior consultants. We're trying it with one who would be mentoring the new consultants who just joined the CCE. Um, and, and the senior consultant was really, really excited about this opportunity. That's great. Wow. So, I mean, it's also a, a, a sort of a democratization of, of, of the administration there as well. It's, 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 it's getting as many people involved in the training and in the teaching as possible. That's, I, I see that as a tendency. Is that, is that a fair way of putting it? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. You got it very right. <laughs> and I mean, it just goes along with this peer idea. I mean, another area that you work in is the peer review groups uh, program which uh, I'm sure gets plenty of signups as well. And, and it, it just meshes so well with decades upon decades of writing studies research that shows through mentoring, through group work, you improve your communication skills. So it's almost like the writing center or the writing program or whatever it might be called needs to mirror in its uh, structure also what it's doing in its practice. We do that um, in, with the peer review groups in particular. Why the students um, like this kind of setup is because they not only receive feedback. So when they work one-on-one -on -one with consultants, it's, it's largely student-centered. Okay? So everything goes to help the students improve their understanding of what they do in their writing and ultimately improve their writing quality. In the peer review group setup, they have the opportunity to learn how to provide that constructive feedback, right? Not only to receive it, but what constructive feedback looks like, how, how to provide it. Um, and this is a skill that uh, many of our students are saying, or peer review group participants are saying, is helping them when they're asked to do um, peer review of their students, let's say classmates, they're in a classmate, uh, they're in a, sorry, in a course, and um, the professor asks or puts them in pairs and asks them to give each other feedback. And at more adva advanced levels, um, some are saying that it's really helping them provide the peer review when they're invited as journal peer reviewers. Um, so it's, it's not only I'm going to join a peer review because they're going to help me improve my writing, but because I'm going to learn from others how to be a reviewer myself. Wow, that, that's, that's just fantastic. I mean, think about that. Future peer reviewers for peer-reviewed journals are being trained as almost a side effect of this sort of very easy to organize peer review groups. And we could also even extrapolate from there, future professors are not going to have necessarily the same difficulties that we talked about at the beginning of the interview to be able to say to their students what exactly is wrong with the writing. Oh, I like this idea. <laughs> I hope this does happen in the future. <laughs> um, and with our peer review groups, I must say that our model is somewhat different from um, others that we looked at in that we facilitate the peer review groups. It's not just the students who are getting together and trying to work things out. We have a, a, a model that we've tested, that we've um, improved based on several iterations, and we have a peer review group facilitator 
um, who is trained also in how to do peer review. And that's that's probably part of why um, it's being so, uh, it perceived so well by the students and, and having these positive side effects as well. Yeah. And what would be the role of the facilitator? I mean, how much involvement would there be then in the uh, peer review groups? Um, well, the facilitator doesn't really take the front stage. Um, the facilitator, I mean, the word facilitator probably um, says a lot, uh, but it's coordinating in, in, you know, coordinating the discussion, starting the discussion at the beginning, providing models for what to pay attention to, how to respond, what peer, you know, what constructive feedback is like. And then once the students in the group um, get a hold of that, then they take the, the ownership of the discussion and the facilitator um, may intervene, let's say, when, uh, when they're getting off track or maybe um, if, if the feedback tends to be, because in our peer review groups, students come from various disciplines. They're interdisciplinary. We do have discipline-specific ones, but most of them are interdisciplinary. And so some students sometimes uh, tend to think that what is done in their discipline is the right thing and, uh, and are very persistent in a particular form of feedback or on, on a particular aspect of writing. And that's where also the, the peer review facilitator intervenes. And that's where they could um, um, take a look at the research writing tutor, the corpus there, and uh, demonstrate how uh, different disciplines may have in different ways. Um, but at the same time, what what is similar across the scientific writing of different disciplines. So they focus on that uh, more more specifically. Oh, I see. All right. Uh, one of the things that always crops up uh, when I'm talking with uh, people here at different uh, universities in Europe when it comes to peer work and mentoring work of this sort is immediately the question of the integrity of the work or questions of plagiarism. Now, my experience has shown that this tends to be a bit of a non-problem but um, your experience is far vaster than mine. What, what would you say of to people who had concerns like that implementing these ideas? I would say from our experience, it tends to be more of a non-problem than a problem. Um, I think more concerns may, and we've resolved those, but initially the concerns from students in particular were, well, I am doing this research, I believe it's really innovative. Um, and I am not very confident to show it to somebody. What if they plagiarize or release this information to somebody else? So um, we um, part of our training is working with um, aspects of confidentiality and our we, we have a specific confidentiality agreement for for the consultants, for peer reviewers, for the peer review participants, so that they feel safe in the environment where they review their writing. Very important and interesting because actually <laughs> your experience shows that it's the other end of the problem that people are worried about, not the plagiarism end or the integrity of the work. It's the high integrity of the work and people just holding their ideas a bit close, which is exactly. entirely understandable. Yeah. Um, so I am teaching a course this semester, just to follow up on this, um, it, the course is um, called Preparing Publishable Th Thesis Chapters. And one of my students um, 
before our first peer review in class, uh, expressed this concern. And she said, well, if you were to review it, I'd be fine. Otherwise, I am very concerned to show it to somebody else because it's, it's really, really innovative, right? So even in a course, we have students, um, we talk about confidentiality and we have this um, confidentiality consent form or agreement um, that they sign. So that that is that tends to be quite an important concern. And especially we have students who come with grant proposals. We have students who come with applications for um, very competitive national awards. And, and, and that is really uh, a concern that they bring with them. And we make sure that this is no longer a concern for them and not a problem. And they can trust us um, in, in working in the environment they're in. We spent all this time talking um, about uh, various uh, aspects of the uh, CCE, and, and we've yet really to uh, arrive at the technology side, which is clearly one of the innovative aspects of the center. Um, we've mentioned the research writing tutor, um, it's a fantastic tool. Uh, perhaps, again, you could give us, and it's also one of those things which is data-driven, research-based. Everyone nowadays is clearly talking about evidence-based learning. And um, if, if this wasn't, then what is? And if, if the approach of the entire CCE wasn't, then what is? Um, but give, give us a, a sort of, again, a, a brief intro as to how it works, maybe even how it was constructed without telling us all the bits and pieces. <laughs> um, that would be great. Yes, there are too many bits and pieces. <laughs> so I will try to be as brief as I can. Um, well, like I said before, it is um, it is based on corpus research. And uh, first, we analyzed 900 published research articles representative of 30 academic disciplines. And then we devised the cross-disciplinary framework of these rhetorical goals and strategies that are characteristic of individual sections of the research article genre. And then these descriptive discourse findings were applied to the design of the research writing tutor. And um, it is a rather innovative platform for disciplinary or discipline-specific writing. Um, and again, I am proud to say that this is the first genre-based exemplar of automated writing evaluation applications. And um, it, it is an upscale from the prototype I developed for uh, my dissertation. The research writing tutor integrates rhetorical feedback with scaffolding derived from all those research articles that, that we um, analyzed. And um, with this tool, we want to enable the students to progress towards deeper understanding and also autonomous use of the genre convention. So it's very much focused on the rhetorical goals and strategies of the research article genre. Um, the platform contains a number of instructional descriptions that, that takes the form of text, but also short video lectures. And these are part of a module that we call Understand Writing Goals, which is a learning modules module. And then another one is called the Explore Published Writing. Um, the purpose is to demonstrate um, students, those conventions in the corpus. So um, it, it exhibits the rhetorical structure of individual texts through annotation, and the annotation is color-coded as well. So they can visually see 
what the move distribution is and they can hover over and see the specific steps um, and where they are located, what comes before, what comes after. Um, and we usually use this module for data-driven learning activities in the classroom. Um, so these two modules then aim to prepare the student writers for drafting and revising their own research article sections with the third module that's called Analyze My Writing, and that's where they get automated feedback. So um, I would say the most unique feature and the most difficult to develop was the automated feedback. So maybe I could tell you a little bit about that. That sounds fantastic, um, yeah. And okay. maybe also to maybe also to uh, just sort of give you another question along the way that you could probably answer simultaneously. Um, is the program itself also learning as it goes? Are there any natural language processing aspects to it? Um, no. So there is natural language processing and machine learning in the back end. Uh, but we made the decision not to learn yet from the student interactions with the tool. Um, and this is a whole another area for research. Um, so it's it's the way it works now, it works on the based on the automated analysis of student text that's done through machine learning techniques. We have classifiers that were trained specifically for each section of, of the research article. Um, so to answer your question here is no, we're not yet integrating students' input into the actual analysis of the text. But I will say that we do have interactive features in our feedback module where students do self-analysis um, and have the option to say, you know, we have three thumbs option, thumbs up, neutral, thumbs down. And so they have the option of clicking on thumbs up or thumbs down and, make, and taking a note for their revision. Uh, so making a revision plan basically um, in view of the feedback they receive from the RWT. So they may say, they may disagree with what the, the tool says, and I will get to that in a moment, and take a note why they disagree. And that usually research has shown that um, when they disagree with the feedback, that's actually very um, useful because it triggers cognitive processes that are important, and they notice what they may not be doing explicitly enough, or maybe not the right functional language, or maybe, so they, they're able to identify issues in their writing and then address them in a revised, in, in revising you know, and resubmitting again to the tool. So there is that interaction allowing the students to have a say in the revision process so that the, this is not a tool driven, but still um, a author driven process of revision with the tool. And, um, as I'm talking about it, um, I should describe the feedback a little bit so it makes more sense. Things that I, I'm saying make more sense. Um, the, um, there are different types of feedback, okay? Um, there is macro level feedback, which focuses on the rhetorical composition and is visually operationalized for students in two ways. When the students submit a draft, they get their text returned color-coded for moves. Okay, so that's the visualization of their discourse structure, the rhetorical composition of the draft. And um, the second form of feedback uh, at macro level is both visual and numerical because it summarizes the move distribution in the draft with range bars and pie charts. 
And this is a feature that we learned appeals a lot, especially to students in STEM disciplines. Um, it, it really brings to the surface this um, empirical background to the feedback. It's not a simple comparison, but it really relies on research that compares your draft with 30 texts um, of published uh, discourse in your field. And then there's a goal-orienting feature with these range bars because it tells students approximately where they are compared with the um, writing of that section in their discipline. And we have in the middle, we say, here's your goal, and then maybe you're below the goal, and maybe you're above the goal, and there are some percentages there um, telling the students how much more they are lacking or may need uh, to reach the goal. Um, so this goal-orienting feature of the feedback um, is expected to increase motivation uh, by allowing the students to monitor their writing progress in relation to published writing. So every time they... Um, edit something, you know, revise their text, resubmit for analysis, those indices change depending on um, what, what they did in the revision. And then the concept of steps or rhetorical strategies is operationalized both through macro level but also micro level feedback. Um, at the macro level, the range bars that I mentioned um, for each move are expandable. And when they expand, they um, show the steps and tell the students whether the amount of content and argumentation um, detected as those steps are compar comparable to the target discipline. So it also draws the students' attention to the steps that may be lacking or may need to be improved. So they're getting really um, more detailed feedback in terms of this rhetorical strategies they are using. Um, and the micro level feedback is also connected to the move color coding on their own draft. So students may click or hover on their own sentences. And when they do that, the feedback takes the form of interactive comments or clarifying questions about the rhetorical intent of a given sentence. And we encourage them to go sentence by sentence and self-analyze what they're doing and see if what they're doing is um, explicit enough um, and, and how the computer may interpret that and what action they should be taking next if they see some discrepancy there between the feedback and their own um, and the meaning that they, that they intend to express but apparently may not be caught by the computer. So that's, that's in a nutshell what the feedback does for the students. And I don't know if you're interested in research, but one arm of the CCE is involved in research. And of course, we do a lot of evaluation of our practices at all levels of programming, but, of, but <laughs> focus on research was our primary and still remains our primary, uh, focus on writing research remains our primary focus. So um, I, could tell you a little bit about that, but we I, don't I think have any, to talk I, about this. Uh, no, I think anyone would be interested um, in the uh, goals of, uh, of the writing research there. Sure, yeah. Um, in the interest of time, maybe I'll just say a few words about the RWT because we've been focusing a lot on its effectiveness um, of um, 
the effectiveness of its use with actual learners, right? Um, so there, there are studies um, looking at various things and just to give, it, give you a sense of why we continue to use it with the students. Um, it's because um, it, we've obtained evidence that um, it helps students learn and apply the genre context, sorry, concepts. Um, and that actually results in writing improvements. So the sequence from learning about the genre conventions to doing data-driven learning activities to see them actually in um, published texts and, and to learn from that and then draft and apply that to multiple revisions actually does result in writing improvement. Um, We've also found that it can enhance writers' metacognitive processing during revision, that uh, the interaction with RWT also has enough features to foster autonomy because the writers actually um, develop their own individualized paths of interaction in a dynamic revision process with the tool. And then we looked at usefulness and the feedback features were rated as comprehensible, stimulating deeper thinking and motivating revision action. Um, and actually to that end, interaction with RWT was found to impact students effective at, at effective and intrinsic levels because many of them were so excited to see improvement when the new feedback was, was returned that their desire to continue working with it and come back to work on another paper with the tool increased progressively. Um, maybe, maybe I'll say a couple more words because you touched upon the computational aspect. Um, we, do, we do work on uh, the computational operationalization of the rhetorical traits that RWT um, analyzes. Um, well, we know that humans are not always accurate, so obviously it's not unexpected that a computer may not always be accurate. And we know where RWT feedback is not as accurate as we would like it to be. And actually, in a manuscript that's currently under review, we investigate the nature of the errors made by RWT's analytic engines explain what may cause those errors and suggest how they may be best rectified. So maybe I should stop here. There's much more going on in terms of research in the center and research that I particularly lead, um, but maybe it's time to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you have just whetted the appetite of any writing studies person looking to understand how do you increase metacognition so that students become motivated to write better. I think you've also whetted the appetite pretty much of any writing center director and many a student and also I'd say even faculty members because correct me if I'm wrong, I think I've heard that faculty members themselves on their own writing have been interested to plug in their texts to the are WT if that's not if I'm not incorrect on that point. No, 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 you're not incorrect. Um, actually, many of my own colleagues are doing that, and we've run workshops at the request of faculty um, with RWTs. One of the one of the workshops actually was um, for faculty in horticulture, and um, it it wasn't just a demonstration of the tool. 
right? We, um, I gave them the, the whole research background and built the credibility there and explained and give them some, some um, examples of um, um, results from the natural sciences, including um, horticulture. And, and I've heard that they really, really enjoyed um, using the RWT. I also did a workshop outside of Iowa State and gave access to faculty from Missouri University and had very heard back very good things about it. So yes, faculty are very excited about using it too once they learn about it. Well, this is a sure sign that this is not merely a tool either for learning or for doing linguistic research. It's a tool of other people's research as well. Absolutely. Great. I, I, I wonder if uh, <laughs> you're not going to get calls or emails asking you whether or not this tool is available. I have been getting a lot of emails about that from all over the world. Um, unfortunately, at this point, the tool is still proprietary to Iowa State, but um, my co-PI and I are working with our Intellectual Property and Technology Transfer Office to see what can be done to uh, give access to um, interested parties outside of Iowa State. Um, so far, what we've done is we've had um, intellectual property agreements, let's say with, since I mentioned the University of Missouri, and these are, um, you know, upon request, take time to to approve and things like that. But um, we, we would really like to make it available to many more people outside of Iowa State. You'll find people who are interested, I can assure you. <laughs> well, Eleanor, you've Thank been you. very generous with your time. Um, I do have one last quick question. The CCE shows itself clearly as being unique. It's unique it's in, in its technology. It's unique in its um, focus on graduate uh, students. It's tailored feedback. It's instructional content. Now, I'd like to come back to this context of the deficit in study skills and how that can be covered. Clearly, the CCE is doing that. But this deficit had to really be pointed up. And it is something that so many people throughout the world at universities recognize and just want somehow to be able to establish a, a center is half as good as the CCE so that they can you know, provide uh, the resources necessary to students. And I suppose long sort of preamble here, but what is it then that you would say if we could maybe just focus on on writing, what is it that you find is most important to anyone who's in academia? To put it another way, what is the one thing that you think really everyone should be agreeing about when it comes to writing in academia? Yeah, that's a very good closing question. <laughs> um, from the perspective of where I am at now, I would say that anyone in academia should agree that young scholars must master skills of academic writing and professional communication to achieve their academic success, gain entry to their disciplinary and professional discourse communities, and to contribute to the accumulation of theoretical empirical knowledge in their fields. Um, this is somehow taken for granted. You know, oftentimes um, we hear from faculty saying, well, if, if the student made it into a doctoral program, then the student should be able to write. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Um, they need to have opportunities to learn how to write. And this is part of the mission of our center is to give them as many opportunities, as many different types of activities and exposure to as many genres 
and training in how to write in those genres um, so that they can later successfully perform their academic roles, whatever those roles may be, engage in disciplinary and interdisciplinary and intradisciplinary interactions and accomplish goals that their disciplinary communities um, usually have. So it's not only for us at this point at the writing at, at the CCE is not only writing, but we are really looking at advanced academic literacies that um, our students need to succeed in the future. Well, thank you very much. That is Elena Kotos, director of the Center for Communication Excellence at the Graduate College, Iowa State University, also associate professor at the English Department, Iowa State. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Elena. Goodbye. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, audience, for listening to us. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.